Welcome to the Freak Show, fellow freaks. I'm Matthew Brockmeyer. I'm Krista Carmen. And this is Murder Coaster. Happy Sawwain, ladies and gentlemen. It is said there lurks in frigid places of isolation a spirit of ravenous and cannibalistic hunger. A malevolent entity with a heart of ice that smells of rotting meat, seeking to infect and possess lonely, lost souls and turn them into monsters with an insatiable lust for human flesh. This ephemeral creature is known as the Wendigo. And today, for our Halloween bonus edition, we bring you true and terrifying tales of Wendigo possession that ended in murder, bloodshed, and barbaric cannibalism. Ladies and gentlemen, step aboard the murder coaster and prepare to meet the ravenous and malignant Wendigo. Let's begin. The indigenous peoples of the North American Plains and Great Lakes saw cannibalism as one of the greatest of human sins. But because of the extreme winter conditions and isolation of these native peoples, during times of intense winter famine, when snowed in, occasionally, out of utter desperation, cannibalism did become a temptation, though their cultures taught this temptation even if it appeared necessary to save one's own life, should instead be met with a resignation to death or even suicide, rather than to ever eat human flesh. This taboo of cannibalism was exemplified in a mythological creature known as the Wendigo, a malevolent spirit of unsatiable hunger, which could possess a person who had eaten of human flesh, turning them into a savage and murderous beast. So filled with ravenous hunger, they would devour their own lips and hands. This myth worked as both a deterrent and warning against resorting to cannibalism. Furthermore, since Wendigos were symbolic of gluttony, greed, and excess, never satisfied after killing, growing hungrier and hungrier the more they consumed, the Wendigo myth served as a method of encouraging cooperation and moderation. As Shane Smallman says in his book, Dangerous Spirits, the Wendigo in Myth and History, it was a means of defining moral social behavior, which could serve as a warning against greed and selfishness. The Wendigo was seen as a manifestation of isolation and winter, bringing with it a cold chill and carrying the winter winds often imagined with long, sharp nails to assist in hunting, stinking of rotted flesh, its eyes glowing red, with a screech so horrifying that hearing it caused one to lose consciousness. It was seen as a creature constantly gorging itself, yet still emaciated from starvation. Basil Johnston, an Ojibwe teacher and scholar from Ontario, describes the Wendigo like this. 
The Wendigo was gaunt to the point of emaciation. Its desiccated skin pulled tightly over its bones, with its bones pushing out against its skin, its complexion the ash gray of death, and its eyes pushed back deep into their sockets. The Wendigo looked like a gaunt skeleton, recently disinterred from the grave. What lips it had were tattered and bloody, unclean and suffering from suppurations of the flesh. The Wendigo gave off a strange and eerie odor of decay and decomposition of death and corruption. During times of famine, often a satirical Wendigo ceremony would be performed to remind the tribe of the dangers of the Wendigo and the temptation of ever eating human flesh and reinforce the taboo. The ceremonial dance, known as Wendigo Kons Hemoen in Ojibwe, and today performed as part of the last day activities of the sun dance, involves wearing a mask and dancing about the drum backwards. Extreme isolation, being bound in by snow and trapped in the winter months with little sunlight, is known to cause an extreme unease and irritability, often referred to as cabin fever. This, coupled with the extreme hunger of famine, would cause a type of madness that sent a person into a cannibalistic frenzy that became known as Wendigo psychosis. In 1661, Jesuit missionaries in Canada wrote of men that had, quote, met their death the previous winter in a very strange manner. Those poor men were seized with an ailment unknown to us, but not very unusual among the people we were seeking. They are afflicted with neither lunacy, hypochondria, nor frenzy, but have a combination of all these species of disease which affects their imaginations and causes them a more than canine hunger. This makes them so ravenous for human flesh that they pounce upon women, children, and even upon men like veritable werewolves and devour them voraciously without being able to appease or glut their appetite, ever seeking fresh prey. And the more greedily, the more they eat. This ailment attacked our deputies, and as death is the sole remedy among those simple people for checking such acts of murder, they were slain in order to stay the course of their madness. End quote. The Hudson Bay Company, Canada's oldest and largest corporation, started ostensibly as a fur trading business with outposts throughout Canada that would buy and trade for the lucrative fur market. They too were well aware of the Wendigo legend. And in the records of their company are several documented cases of people becoming cannibals under the Wendigo spell, including a white trapper that murdered and ate his family when snowed in and was then sent to a hospital for the criminally insane afterwards. But in 1878, a terrifying and horrific incident would become the most famous of all cases of documented Wendigo psychosis. The winter of 1878 was particularly harsh 
in Western Canada with record snowfall and outlandishly freezing temperatures. And it was here in Alberta where our story takes place. Haki Kutchin was a Plains Cree trapper, though everyone knew him by the English version of the name, Swift Runner. Swift Runner was well known around the Fort Saskatchewan settlement. He was a giant of a man, six foot three and covered in muscle, with a face a policeman would later describe as, quote, as ugly and evil looking a face as I have ever seen. But he was known to be intelligent and trustworthy and an expert on the terrain of the region, which landed him the job as a guide for the Northwest Mounted Police. But at some point, it's reported that on a hunting trek deep in the mountains, Swift Runner's hunting partner died, and he was forced to eat him to survive. And when he did, it's said that the spirit of loneliness and cannibalism entered him, and the spirit of the Wendigo now had him in its clutches. Swift Runner developed a fondness for whiskey, which would be smuggled into the area disguised as medicine. He began going on crazy drinking benders, which earned him a reputation as being, quote, an ugly customer to meet when on a spree, end quote, and so ugly that some called him the terror of the whole region. It became so bad that the police no longer wanted to use him as a guide and sent Swift Runner back to his tribe, where he caused so much trouble he, quote, turned the Cree camps into little hells, end quote. And the Cree, too, tired of his crazy antics, exiled him. And Swift Runner was forced to retreat into the wilderness with his wife, mother, brother, and six children, where he survived as a trapper. During that incredibly cold and bitter winter of 1878, police started to hear strange stories. A Cree chief said that Swift Runner had turned cannibal, and a hunter reported that Swift Runner's entire family had been killed in the wilderness. When there was a break in the weather that spring, a squad of officers went out to investigate the rumors, but they could not locate Swift Runner or his family. Then Swift Runner came wandering alone into the Catholic mission in St. Albert. He claimed his entire family had starved to death, trapped in the snow and freezing temperatures. But suspicion grew among the priests. Swift Runner didn't seem malnourished at all, wasn't emaciated. Furthermore, he was plagued with screaming fits and horrible nightmares as he slept. He told the priest he was being tormented by an evil spirit called Wendigo, but said little else about it. The priests took their trepidations to the police, who questioned Swift Runner about how his family had starved to death, yet he had miraculously survived, and seemed so healthy and fit. Suspicion then growing to cause an alarm. Police demanded Swift Runner take them to his family's camp, deep in the wilderness, north of Fort Saskatchewan, a trek which took days. Eventually, they found the trapper's camp, and Swift Runner brought the mounted police to a small grave, explaining how his son had died and he'd buried him there. 
The grave was opened, and the corpse lay there, undisturbed and unmolested. But then, around a campfire, the police began to notice random bones, which all appeared human. Some of the bones were dry and hollow, as if they'd been cracked open and emptied of the marrow. They found a skull and then another, inside of which a small moccasin had been stuffed, a beading needle still sticking out of the unfinished work. When police confronted Swift Runner over this, he revealed the horror of what had transpired there in that trapping camp over the brutal winter. At first, Swift Runner explained, he became haunted by terrible and demonic dreams. And then the Wendigo spirit began to creep through his mind, gradually taking control, calling on him to murder and devour his family until the Wendigo had completely taken control of him and he was no longer a swift runner at all, but a spirit of insatiable hunger and cannibalistic bloodlust. It was then that the Wendigo murdered and ate Swift Runner's wife. After this horrific act, the Wendigo then forced one of Swift Runner's boys to kill and butcher his younger brother forcing the boy to eat of the flesh before killing and devouring him as well. While gorged on human flesh, the Wendigo then hung Swift Runner's infant child by the neck from a lodgepole, tugging on the baby's dangling feet. Possessed and in a wild frenzy, he shot some of his family, bludgeoned others with an axe, and even strangled one girl with a cord. He'd go on to say that the flesh of his mother-in-law had been a bit tough. The revolted mounted police hauled Swift Runner and the horrifying evidence back to Fort Saskatchewan, where he was charged with murder and cannibalism. The trial began on August 8th, 1879. A leading Cree English scholar was brought in to observe the trial and ensure Swift Runner knew what was being said. Swift Runner sat calmly throughout the testimony of witnesses who described the family being in perfect health when they headed out to the woods, then Swift Runner coming out of the forest alone. There was no evidence presented in Swift Runner's defense. Asked if he wanted to say anything, he responded, I did it. He was found guilty and sentenced to death by hanging. Swift Runner declined to spend the night before his execution with a priest. The white man has ruined me, he said, blaming much of his ruin on the whiskey that was smuggled to the natives disguised as medicine, adding, I don't think their God could amount to much. Now, this was the first death sentence in the Canadian Northwest Territories, and it presented a problem. The police had never before conducted an execution. Although the Hudson Bay Company had once hanged an employee for murder, this was, for all intents and purposes, the first formal execution in Western Canada. Staff Sergeant Fred Bagley, a force bugler, was put in charge of the arrangements. A scaffold was built especially for the execution, and an army pensioner was paid $50 to serve as the hangman. The execution was ordered to take place at 7.30 a.m. on December 20th, 1879. It was 
pitch black and brutally cold when Swift Runner was taken from his cell to start the long walk toward the gallows that awaited outside in the swirling snow. Swift Runner walked confidently into the yard and appeared much calmer than many of the 60 or so who gathered by the gallows to watch the execution. Even the hangman appeared nervous, and he'd actually forgotten to bring straps to bind Swift Runner's arms. And then, as Swift Runner was brought up to the gallows, it was discovered that the crowd had inadvertently used the trap door as kindling and burned it, not realizing what it was for. As the sheriff and hangman rushed to get the gallows ready again, Swift Runner sat near one of the fires, joking and chatting, snacking on pemmican as a flurry of snow cascaded down, the thick noose hanging loosely around his neck. I could kill myself with a tomahawk, he offered, and save the hangman further trouble. After two hours, the trapdoor was finally replaced and the execution was ready to proceed. Swift Runner was allowed to eat one final pound of pemmican before he was taken to the scaffold, where a thick black hood was placed over his head. Now, hanging is an art. If the drop is not long enough, the neck won't break, and the victim will slowly choke to death. But if the drop is too long, the force will rip the head right off, spraying everything in blood and creating a terribly undignified mess. The newly minted executioner had decided on a drop of five feet for a man of Swift Runner's size and weight. And when the trapdoor finally fell, all went perfect. Swift Runner's neck snapped and he died instantly with no struggle. Many natives considered hanging an act of barbaric cruelty. And because of that, local chiefs were invited to the execution to see that it was done with dignity and was not an act of torture. According to the sheriff, in a report he wrote to the government, the native chiefs in attendance, quote, declared that it was done in such a way that they could no more object to that mode of execution, end quote. And one witness who had watched several other executions in the United States also seemed pleased with the spectacle, slapping his thigh and saying, boys, it was the prettiest hanging I ever seen. And that is the story of how the hanging of a Wendigo was the first execution in the history of the Canadian Northwest Territories. Hello, I'm Mark. I'm Gina. And together we are Men's Wellness Theatre. Or at least we try. Uh, we try to survive it. <laughs> We're the hosts of The Worst, a podcast where I deep dive horrible subjects and tell the story to Gina... And I tell terrible, tasteless jokes to kind of break up the awful, soul-crushing details that you bring us. I try and you try, and that's what makes it great. Yeah, I mean, stop being upset. We are trying our best. And honestly, we're weird people. We find this makes it a little more palatable to get through the horrible details of some of the worst true crime. Yeah, because otherwise, I just want to take an ice pick to my own eardrums. I can't do it anymore. No. So if you're the type of person who finds, you know, Weekend at Bernie's the most hilarious movie ever, we might be up your alley. Give us a try. Absolutely. Just look for Mental Illness Theater on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or whatever platform you happen to use for podcasts. 
Next, we have the story of Jack Fiddler. Now, this is a really interesting case. The Sucre clan were a Native American people living in the boreal forest off of Sandy Lake in northwest Ontario. They're part of the Anishinaabe, who are part of the larger Ojibwe people. So the Sucres were completely isolated, and they were actually the last Native peoples living in North America completely under their own laws and customs. And this, this is the case that would change that forever. In the early 1900s, there was a very famous Sucre chief and shaman by the name of Zawanu Gazigu Gaubau, which means he who stands in the southern sky. But everyone knew him as Jack Fiddler. He got this name because during his excursions to trading posts, he had learned to play the fiddle and was quite gifted. He also learned to make fiddles and other musical instruments as well. He had five wives and 13 children. Polygamy was very common and was often seen as a necessity, for so many young men died in the extremely harsh conditions. And again, this is the case that would change all of that. Jack Fiddler's father, Pimi Chikag, which means porcupine standing sideways. I love these names, porcupine standing sideways. Fucking awesome. Uh, He had been a very respected spiritual leader. And Jack Fiddler followed in his father's footsteps, becoming a respected shaman. And one of his greatest skills was being able to defeat a Wendigo. The belief in Wendigos in the Sucre tribe was absolute. In fact, Fiddler's own brother had been killed after turning Wendigo when supplies ran out during a trading expedition. But what Jack Fiddler was really offering and doing behind this veil of Wendigo mythology was euthanizing the very sick and elderly. The loved ones of terminally ill people would come to him and ask him to stop their suffering. In some cases, the person themselves would ask to be put out of their misery, all under the guise of a fear of turning Wendigo. Apparently, the very sick and dying were seen as being susceptible to the Wendigo spirit entering them. Jack and his brother Joseph had actually held a ceremony for Joseph's daughter-in-law, Wasakipeke, who was deathly sick and in agonizing pain, during which she was euthanized as a means of ending her suffering. Jack Fiddler's skills as a killer of Wendigos spread into the neighboring encampments. The trappers and traders of the Hudson Bay Company, the missionaries and neighboring Cree, all becoming aware of the legend, and Jack Fiddler's reputation as a warrior against the Wendigo spread far and wide. And in early 1907, the Northwest Mounted Police became aware of this reputation as well. The Northwest Mounted Police were a Canadian paramilitary police force established in 1873 to maintain order in the new Canadian Northwest Territories. These guys were eager to impose Canadian law on the natives. And as we said, the Sucre people were the last group of indigenous people still living solely by their own rules and customs. So the mounted police descended onto the Sucre camp and arrested Jack and his brother Joseph for the murder of his daughter-in-law. They also demanded that all the men give up their wives, save one, 
as polygamy was illegal under Canadian law. For many of this tribe, it was the first time they had ever seen a white man. Jack and Joseph were taken to the town Norway House in Manitoba to await trial. While meanwhile, Canadian newspapers picked up on the story and wrote sensational articles, calling the natives devil worshippers and demanding harsh convictions. But on September 30th, Jack Fiddler was somehow able to escape the prison. You'd think this expert trapper and hunter would go totally outlaw, run to the forest to live a life on the run. But sadly, he hung himself instead and was found dead later that day. But Joseph went on trial. There, an eyewitness named Angus Ray testified that Wasakipake was killed while an unbearable and agonizing pain, that she was incurably sick, that she surely would not have survived, and it was in fact a mercy killing, and furthermore, a custom of the Sucre people, who weren't even aware of Canadian law at all, hadn't even seen a white person, and were still living by their ancient and traditional rules and customs. Trappers and traders from the Hudson Bay Company and even missionaries, testified for the defense, saying it wasn't an act of murder, but was euthanasia done in accordance with tribal law and an ancient belief system. They pleaded for the court to have mercy on Joseph, but the magistrate stated, quote, what the law forbids, no pagan belief can justify. The law does not permit me to exhibit any mercy because of the prisoner's ignorance and superstition, end quote and found him guilty and sentenced him to death. Appeals were made, and the conviction was actually overturned. He was ordered to be released, but sadly, Joseph Fiddler died in prison of tuberculosis just three days before the release order was announced. With their two main chiefs and shamans now dead, the Sucre people were leaderless and saw no choice but to accept government rule. Jack's son, Robert, signed a treaty, and that was how the last of the native people of North America, living completely under their own laws and traditions, were conscripted into the laws of the white man's government. Beyond the Shadows podcast. In the darkest corners of our universe lie spaces where even the light won't go. Places where terror and the unknown lurk, always waiting. Join Ryan and Scott on the Beyond the Shadows podcast as we pull back the curtain and peer into the darkness. We'll examine hauntings, true crimes, mysteries, UFOs, exorcisms, reincarnations, mysteries, and all things dark. Join us as we go Beyond the Shadows. Like the werewolf, which came from ancient folklore only to be molded by popular culture into what today would have been unrecognizable to folks in the Middle Ages who actually believed in the demonic creatures, so too has the Wendigo been formed and changed by popular culture as it has been conscripted into the realm of horror entertainment. It was Algernon Blackwood in 1910 who really brought the legend to attention with his classic horror novella, The Wendigo, which H.P. Lovecraft praised as amazingly potent and a marked triumph in craftsmanship. 
Then, when famous Fantastic Mysteries magazine was going to print the Blackwood novella in their June 1944 issue, they hired the great Matt Fox to do the artwork, and he conceived of a creature with antlers. This image of a bestial snow creature with antlers really caught on, though this depiction bears little resemblance to the original entity. Stephen King, who used the Wendigo in both Pet Cemetery and The Girl Who Loved Tom Gordon, depicted the Wendigo as having ram's horns. Then, in 2001, filmmaker Larry Fessenden picked up the Wendigo torch with the film Wendigo, cementing the antlers as the new look of the legendary creature. So much so that when the Guillermo del Toro-produced film about the Wendigo was released in 2021, it was titled simply Antlers. In the book The Rural Gothic in American Popular Culture, Backwoods Horror and Terror in the Wilderness, Professor Bernice M. Murphy describes how King's The Shining could be interpreted as a Wendigo story, in particular Kubrick's film version, which is filled with Native American images. And while we're on the topic of horror films, I just wanted to mention as a side note real quick that there's these folks out there making an amazing horror film right now called I'll Be Glad When You're Dead. It's an homage to the 80s slasher movie, and it looks great. A lot of it's shot in a Cold War bunker. And they have an Indiegogo campaign starting today, Halloween, that's going to go on all month. And you guys should definitely check it out. There's all kinds of cool swag, including T-shirts and DVDs. We got some exclusive deals. I'll put a link to it in the show notes. I'll be glad when you're dead. Sounds great. Agreed. <laughs> but back to Wendigos. While the myth of the Wendigo has now been appropriated by modern culture, Wendigos even appearing in My Little Pony episodes, some still believe this malevolent spirit of loneliness, murder, insatiable hunger, and cannibalism lurking in the Canadian Great White North is still very much real and alive, even to this day often citing the 2008 murder of Tim McLean as an example. Tim McLean was a 22-year-old Canadian carnival talker. Now, you'll often hear these guys called carnival barkers. You know, step right up, step right up, ladies and gentlemen, that guy. But I have it from firsthand knowledge, they do not like to be called barkers. That's an insult. They're not barking, they're talking. And I... Fancy myself a bit of a carnival talker myself, to be honest. Obviously, I introduce each episode of the show in this fashion, invoking the spirit of the carnival talker. But interestingly, I have been told that the guys who sit outside of strip clubs and entice people to enter, they don't mind being called a barker at all. Interesting little piece of trivia there. <laughs> yeah. So on July 30th, 2008, Carnival talker Tim McLean. Don't call him a barker. Got it. Noted. <laughs> uh, Tim McLean was on a Greyhound bus headed home to Winnipeg after working the Edmonton Fair. Tim had his headphones on and was resting his head against the window, catching a nap as the bus rattled along the Yellowhead Highway through Saskatchewan, prime Wendigo territory, where the restless and malevolent spirit is thought to dwell. At 6.55 p.m., the bus pulled into Erickson, Manitoba, and a tall man in his 40s with a shaved head and sunglasses on named Vince Lee boarded. 
took a seat next to the napping Tim. Vince, who was a Canadian citizen but had been born in China, had a degree in computing and worked as a forklift operator. As the bus motored along through the vast and lonesome prairie landscape, perhaps the spirit of the Wendigo blew in. A madness and lust for blood. For suddenly, without warning, Vince pulled out a large knife and began to viciously stab Tim McLean in the neck and chest. Panicked passengers screamed in terror and ran from their seats, many weeping hysterically as Vince went on stabbing, oblivious to anyone else, slashing in a manner passenger would later say was almost robotic. The driver pulled the bus to the side of the road, the terrified occupants pouring off. The driver and two men then bravely attempted to rescue McLean, but Vince went after them, slashing and stabbing at them with his knife until they fled the bus, locking the doors shut behind them. Vince went back to McLean, dug his knife into his neck, and began hacking and sawing until he had decapitated him. Lifting the severed head up by the hair and displaying it through the window to the crowd of horrified passengers, some who began to vomit. Vince then cut open the corpse's chest, ripped out McLean's heart, put it to his lips, and began to ravenously eat. He plucked the eyes from the skull and ate those as well. He cut off the ears and nose, sawed off the tongue, and shoved all of these into his pockets before sawing off hunks of flesh and putting them into plastic bags. He then attempted to drive the bus away, but the emergency immobilizer system had been engaged by the driver, rendering the vehicle inoperable. At 8.30 p.m., the Royal Canadian Mounted Police arrived. And by 9 p.m., a heavily armed tactical unit was also on the scene. It was a standoff as Vince paced the bus, shouting out at law enforcement, I have to stay on the bus forever, before going back to the corpse to hack off more meat and stuff it into his blood-streaked mouth in what appeared to be an insatiable hunger. At 1.30 in the morning, Vince attempted to smash out a window and escape, and law enforcement made their move. They tased him twice, wrestled him down, and were able to handcuff him and stuff him into the back of a police cruiser. In the morning, Greyhound representatives took the passengers to a local store and bought them new clothes, as all the baggage remained on the bus, which was now a crime scene. They finally arrived in Winnipeg at 3.30 the next day. Can you imagine? What a bus trip. Literally a trip from hell. Ironically, Greyhound had a huge ad campaign at the time with the slogan, there's a reason you never heard of bus rage. Fuck it up. That's, that's unfortunate. Yes, and they obviously immediately pulled that slogan. When Lee appeared in court to face charges of second-degree murder, he only uttered three words. Please kill me. It would later come out that Vince Lee was suffering from undiagnosed schizophrenia. Apparently, he'd converted to Christianity after hearing the voice of God telling him that his life would be the third story of the Bible and that he was, in fact, the second coming of Christ. God told Vince that it was his destiny to save the world from an alien invasion. 
He'd often wander out by foot or bus, disappearing for days under the delusion that aliens were after him. In 2005, he had been found wandering the highway in Winnipeg, where he told police God had commanded he follow the sun. But does schizophrenia, a belief in aliens, and thinking you're the second coming of Christ really explain this insane act of violence and cannibalism? Lee's boss, Vincent Augret, described Lee as reliable, hardworking, and not showing any signs of trouble. He doesn't really appear to have any history of violence. Could a malevolent spirit of loneliness and insatiable cannibalistic hunger have descended on Vince Lee as he wandered those lonely and forlorn Canadian roads? Could the Wendigo still be lurking? in the forests and plains of the cold north, searching out a host, lonely, hungry, and desperate enough to let the creature infect their soul. Lee went to trial on March 3rd, 2009, and was found not guilty by reason of insanity, and both the prosecution and the judge agreed. He was remanded to the Selkirk Mental Health Center, Within just a few years, he was being granted passes for temporary leaves, at first supervised, then slowly unsupervised. And on February 10th, 2017, the Manitoba Criminal Code Review Board ordered Lee to be granted an absolute discharge with no legal obligations or restrictions. And to this day, Vince Lee is a free man who's shown no signs of violence. And that's going to wrap it up. For our Halloween bonus episode on the Wendigo. We hope you all enjoyed it. And hey, remember to check out the upcoming horror movie, I'll Be Glad When You're Dead, and their Indigo campaign link in the episode notes. Thanks so much for listening, dear listeners and fellow freaks. And from all of us here at Murder Coaster, have a happy, merry, and most spooky Halloween. We will be back tomorrow to bring you one of true crime's most mysterious and brutal murder mysteries and offer compelling evidence as to who we think committed it. So be sure to listen in. And you know we want to hear from you. Got a case you think we should cover? Did we get something wrong? You just want to say hi? Drop us a line at murdercoasterpodcast at gmail.com. That's MurderCoasterPodcast at gmail.com. Happy Sawain. Merry Halloween. Stay spooky, everybody.